I love this. It's so great to see you guys here. So great to see that you're willing to hear the word of God. It's so important. I talked to a fellow a couple of months ago, just doing terribly, the spiritual life, just nothing. And I asked him, when was the last time you heard a sermon? He said, it's been, I don't know, three or four months. Well, if you won't eat, then you're starving. And so for you to be here on a Saturday morning, not playing golf, not mowing the lawn, but hearing the word of God, I know you're going to do those things at 1030. <laughs> I understand that. But this is first. This is important. I want to I want to talk to you about really one of the most amazing passages I think ever written by the Apostle Paul. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 14 through 16. It'll take us a bit of time to get there. While you're finding that, let me read to you what Jesus said in Mark 8, 35. He said, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. This was right after Jesus gave the cost of following Christ. He said in calling the crowd to, himself, to, to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That is a, a, a very little preached concept in the American church. The idea, and this is my sermon title for this morning, of winning by losing. You win by losing, and how do you do that? I want to talk about that today in our text, specifically 2 Corinthians two fourteen through 16. This is where Paul uses a, a, a metaphor. It's the metaphor of a fragrance or the aroma of Christ. And in these three verses, he's going to speak of being used to spread the knowledge of Christ, the knowledge of being like a pleasant fragrance, a pleasant aroma. From my own experience, I just want to share a little bit with you. I've been now in the 25th year of the gospel ministry as a pastor, and I've made some observations about men who are a fragrance of Christ, who are an aroma. And this is just my observation. Men who are delightful, they give their pastors joy because they strengthen the church. But these are men who have a love for the preached word, they have a highly teachable spirit that doesn't decrease over time. It just increases. They want to learn all the more. They're very pliable. They're, they're teachable. They want to become more like Christ. When you correct them, even gently, they take it and they say, thank you, instead of being difficult. And they're, they're like clay that you can mold. They're not like a two-by-four that you have to break against a tree. They have a mind that loves to learn, never gets weary of the truth they have a conscious readiness for worship they're not the guys that are rolling out of bed on sunday morning going oh no and i shouldn't have stayed up till 5 a.m watching movies they're ready to worship these are men who love the hymns they love the spiritual songs of our faith and long ago they gave up the silly notion that singing hymns and singing songs is meant to give me an emotional charge. They understand that singing the hymns of the faith is meant to glorify God because you're speaking his truth back to him and you're implanting those truths deeply in your heart. They have a sense of the weightiness of the gospel ministry. Church is not a game for them. The gospel is not a game. They have a clear understanding of loving and supporting their leadership, that, that hasn't been an issue for years for them. They have a deep desire to be useful in the body of Christ. They, they wouldn't dare dream of being on the sidelines. They want to be in the game. They want to be playing. And along with that, these are men who have a humility and service. He gets it that all the members of the body are vital no, more, no matter what you're doing. He's dependable. He's ready at the drop of a hat to disciple another man. That I, as a pastor, can say, so-and-so, can you come alongside this man? And he's, absolutely. Why'd you even ask? Just tell me. He's very sensitive in his own spirit to his sin. When he speaks out of turn, he corrects himself immediately. And certainly when he's corrected, he receives it. He has a tenderness of heart, yet a toughness of Christian manly character. He understands what it means to do hard things. He has no desire to please the world. 
to fall in line with godless notions about marriage, family, the church, that, that those desires are long gone. He's working to be measured, to be thoughtful, to not be overly spontaneous in how he speaks. He doesn't have to be the center of attention. He focuses on listening much more than he does on speaking. That's a sign of maturity in the Lord. He's patient. He knows how to wait on the Lord. In fact, he's gotten to a point where he can wait on the Lord beyond this lifetime, that all questions do not have to be answered in this lifetime. If he's married, he's genuinely pursuing to the fullest degree, loving his wife as Christ loves the church. That's his mission. That's his goal. That's his focus. He looks to eternity. He's eager for heaven. And by the way, this has nothing to do with age. You might say that that's, well, older Christians are that way. Some of the godliest younger Christians I've ever known are godly because they look to heaven. He has a proper view of the sovereignty of God and the expectation of suffering in this life. He suffers with grace and dignity and trust in the Lord and that that's just part of the deal. He would be the first one to say that the godly character traits in him are due to the depth of his knowledge of the word of God, not due to some sort of sentimental, emotion-based relationship with the Lord. He's not easily fooled by fluffy pseudo-psychology, pseudo-theology. He's not easily fooled by popular thought because he knows only truth will truly build and maintain his faith. Words that characterize this man would be words like strong and reliable and measured, self-controlled, biblical, heavenly-minded, kind, inspirational, content, joyful, determined, a leader. He's a worker. He's a provider. He's courageous. In other words, the fragrance that follows his life is a sweet, Christ-like, mature, seasoned joy to the church of Jesus Christ. And that's the end point. That's the goal of the Christian life. The Christian man's walk with the Lord is to be somebody who gives an accurate reflection of what godliness is. That's our goal. And we see this here in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to come back to it. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we who are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those we are, rather, the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. And then he finishes this section with a question, who is sufficient for these things? Now, I could preach a message on live a life that's a sweet aroma to Christ. That's what I've been talking about here briefly. But the text goes far beyond live a life that's a sweet aroma to Christ. It does do that. But it takes us into a different realm, and that's the realm of total surrender, of total yielding to the Lord, of winning by losing. And I can almost guarantee you that the most famous part of this text, the triumphal procession, is not what you may think it is. Now, to properly understand this, we have to start at a pretty high altitude and work our way down to the text, because it only makes sense placed in its proper context. And once we've done that, it'll fall into place pretty easily and be very, very easy to understand. The book of 2 Corinthians really gives us more insight into the heart of the Apostle Paul as a pastor, as a shepherd, than any other book, uh, even more so than the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. 2 Corinthians is very personal. You get to know him as a man, as a pastor. In chapter 1, Paul blesses God for his comfort during afflictions. Paul informs the Corinthians of some of his sufferings, and he defends his intention to come back to Corinth. But in chapter 2, he determines that his next visit won't be what he calls a painful visit. He wants it to be a productive visit. So why would Paul say he didn't want another painful visit? Well, we have to go slightly higher in altitude to even understand that. We have to know the whole story of the church at Corinth related to Paul. In the fall of the year 50 to the year 52, in the spring or so, Paul was in Corinth. He was evangelizing the lost. He was planting this new church made up exclusively of now former idol worshipers. 
It, it would be sort of like being a nursery worker in the church and inheriting 100 babies all at one time. And so that's what he was. He was a spiritual nursery worker, suddenly with all these baby believers. This was actually the very first time in Paul's missionary journeys that he stayed in one place for very long, stayed there for 18 months. And this is a visit that's recorded in Acts chapter 18. Well, a few years after he left, in about A.D. 55 or so, Paul wrote a letter to the church at Corinth. And he references this letter in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11. This is a non-scriptural letter. It's one that we don't have and we don't need. If we needed it and if it was scripture, it would be in the Bible. But in this letter, he had written to them to not associate with immoral people who called themselves brothers in Christ. In other words, the church is set apart. It's different. Somebody can't say, I'm a brother, but I keep acting the way I did in the world. He said, don't associate with them. Well, they either misunderstood this or they mischaracterized his exhortation. And so in the spring of 56, Paul was in Ephesus and he got a visit from a delegation from the Corinthian church. The delegation brought an official letter with questions from the church, but the messengers also not only gave him the letter, but they gave him the real scoop. They gave him the verbal report of what was actually going on in the church, things that just happened to be left out of that official letter. And the main thing they talked about was sexual immorality of, of an incredibly high degree happening in the church, and no one was doing anything about it. In fact, they also told Paul that there were, there were quarrels, there were there was infighting. There were backbiting. There, was just, there, were, there were factions in the church. Some followed this man. Some followed this one. And so Paul wrote a second letter to the church at Corinth. The first six chapters address the verbal reports by the delegation, and the last ten chapters deal with the actual questions written by the members of the Corinthian church. This letter is the inspired letter we have as 1 Corinthians. It's his second letter to the Corinthians, but in your Bible it says 1 Corinthians, or as our British brothers say, 1 Corinthians. I can't make myself do that, but that's what they do. Well, based on this infighting and the unreported sexual sin happening in the church, Paul made a surprise visit to the church. Surprise inspection shortly after they received his second letter, 1 Corinthians, and the visit didn't go well. 2 Corinthians 12 and 13 refer to this visit, and here, uh, just before the three verses we're considering this morning, Paul describes that visit, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 1, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you, for if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I, sh I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Just to take a real quick understanding of this, basically, when he made this visit, they mistreated Paul. They rejected his counsel. They rejected his authority. And to put it in terms we understand, they basically ran them out of town. You're not welcome here. He's the one who led all of them to Christ. And they said, you need to go. And like a true shepherd, he won't give up. Paul wrote a third letter in the spring of 56. You might call this a I have nothing to lose letter at this point. 2 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 8, describes this letter. It was scathing. It was severe. It was sharp in its rebuke. And again, it's not an inspired letter or it would be in Scripture. Our chapter here, 2 Corinthians 2, verses 3 through 9, describes that, yes, the church had, in fact, disciplined the sexually immoral man. That's good. But he had repented, and the church wouldn't receive his repentance. They wouldn't take him back. And that was bad. And so another rebuke had been in order. That basically saying, boy, you, you swung from one end of the pendulum all the way to the other. So after writing this severe letter, from a human standpoint, Paul is biting his nails He's wondering how they're going to respond. And remember, there's no email, there's no telephone, no nothing. He has to wait for a response. And so in the summer of the year 56, he went to the city of Troas. He was supposed to meet his co-worker, Titus. Titus had been sent to Corinth to find out whether they're going to respond. Titus was supposed to be there. But what happened in Troas? 
2 Corinthians 2, verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Paul is anxious because he didn't know how the church in Corinth was going to respond to his, his third letter, the, the scathing letter, the severe letter, the sharp letter. And he cut his ministry in Troas short. We know from Acts 20, he only stayed there a week. Now, he crammed as much ministry in as he could. This is where he famously preached all night long on his last night in Acts chapter 20. But he cut his ministry short to go try to find Titus in Macedonia. And I have to take a little side note here. The sin of the church at Corinth had a massive impact, not just on them, but on the whole ministry. You can't hurt one another without also hurting the gospel work. That's what always happens. The conflict with Corinth was so distracting and so agitating to Paul that it sabotaged the mission opportunity. His grief undermined his effectiveness. One theologian writing to pastors about this passage wrote this, quote, Every reader of this text can probably identify sometime in their Christian lives when they felt that they could not minister to others or that they only went through the motions because they were consumed by anxiety caused by a church conflict, the threat of dismissal, backbiting, slanderous rumors. It's even more devastating when disloyalty and backstabbing come within our own congregation from those whom we have personally served and loved. Preoccupation with such things and depression and worry hinders evangelism. Church strife never speeds the gospel's advance. And that's what's happening here. Paul can't focus. But once Paul arrived in Macedonia, 2 Corinthians 7 records that Paul found Titus. And I would imagine that the very first question he asked was, what happened? And Titus gave Paul relief by reporting that the church at Corinth had responded in a godly fashion to his severe letter. They had repented. Paul said in chapter 7 that his letter caused grief, but it was godly grief that led to repentance. And so he's, he's thankful and he's, he's rejoicing. And so in response to that good report from Titus, Paul writes his fourth letter to Corinth, what we have here as 2 Corinthians. And now in 2 Corinthians, Paul further defends his ministry as being from the Lord. But here in the second chapter, If you read from, and we can't do it now, obviously, if you read from 2 Corinthians 1, verse 1, all the way to this point, so far, he hasn't told them that he knows they're on good terms again. I won't say that this is payback is sweet, but there's a little bit of of, of some drama here. Instead, in defending his ministry, he keeps them on their seats all the way till about chapter 7 before he says, I know we're good. In Acts 2, 12 and 13, I just read it to you. He describes his anxiety at not knowing the response he was going to have. Not finding Titus caused him angst, caused him worry. And he leaves himself in that situation. In this time before Titus gave him relief with a good report. And so now we get to verse 14. And as far as they're concerned, Paul is still in this time of anxiety. During this time of waiting. And verses 14 through 16 describe his attitude while he is uncertain, while he is anxious, while he doesn't know how they've responded. And so we don't read verses 14 through 16 as Paul's relief after Titus had reported to him. We read it as how Paul viewed his ministry and his circumstances while he was in the dark, while he was waiting, while he was wondering whether the church at Corinth would completely reject him yet again or whether they had responded. And in his grief, in his sorrow, in his waiting, this was his posture. This was his spiritual condition, his determination in the gospel ministry. Now, verses 14 through 16 begin to make sense in their context. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient 
for these things. Now, the principle here is astounding, and it really relates to all of us. The principle is that Paul's very life is a fragrance of Christ despite his circumstances. And what I'd like to explore this morning is the nature of what it means to be the fragrance of Christ. And some of this may surprise you. The question here is, how can Paul be so thankful in the midst of his anxiety, in the midst of his nail-biting waiting? What was he thankful for? So I'd like to give you three reasons for Paul's thankfulness, and all of them have to do with the nature of being the fragrance of Christ. Three reasons for Paul's thankfulness. We'll spend most of our time on the first reason, and it relates the most to my sermon title, How to Win by Losing. Then the others will fall in line very nicely if you understand the first reason. First reason for Paul's thankfulness. The defeated nature of the fragrance of Christ. He's thankful because of the the defeated nature of the fragrance of Christ. Now, as you read the text, you may be saying, Steve, you've lost your mind. Paul says in verse 14, he's thankful for the triumphal procession, not the defeated procession. Well, let's work through this. Paul says that God in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. When, When Paul says us, he's referring specifically to himself and his ministry companions, that he, as a minister of the gospel, is being led in triumphal procession by God in or through Christ. And a procession is just what it sounds like. It sounds like it's a parade. And Paul is referring to a very specific Roman practice, which I'm sure you've heard of, but I want to go into some detail about it. This is a picture of an elaborate celebration of a victory in war, not just in battle, but in an entire war. And this celebration is called a triumph. This was for a Roman conquering general that he's leading captives in a parade through the streets of Rome. Now, this was a big deal. This wasn't just a a spontaneous deal. This was prepared for weeks in advance. Scaffolding was put up all over the streets of Rome so that every every citizen could come and see. And it was sort of like grandstands, I guess we would call them today. The arrival of the conquering general and all of his victorious army were coming to be paraded through the streets The spoils of war were paraded with the victorious army and the general, all the things they had taken from the land they conquered. They even had rolling stages, entire stages that were pushed by slaves to reenact specific battles. You you couldn't see it on on Fox News or CNN or anything like that, so they had actors reenacting battles as they rolled through the streets. You had painted pictures of the cities that had been conquered. These were taken on chariots through the streets of Rome all the way finally to end up at the, at the Temple of Jupiter so that, so that people could see these are the cities that Rome owns now. And last and most climactically, a procession of important chained captives were paraded around. Kings or queens or, or royalty or the, the greatest soldiers that were captured. Most often they were on their way to their own execution at the end of the parade. These celebrations could last as long as three days. It was a big, big deal. Now, I will say this. We can use this text to at least propel us forward to some similar truths about the triumph of the Christian through Christ. We could think of Hebrews 2.14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise took, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. That's certainly a triumph. In Romans 16.20, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. There's a triumph. And certainly uh, Romans eight thirty seven and all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That in Christ we have the victory, we have the triumph over sin and over death. But is that the truth that Paul is conveying here? I would submit that the truth he's conveying here leads to that victory. But he's not talking about victory, he's talking about defeat. This is not Paul picturing himself as a conquering general. This is not Paul picturing himself as one of the members of the army marching in victory through the streets of Rome. This is one long word in Greek, and when it's followed by a direct personal object, leads us in triumphal procession, it always refers to the captive, not to the army. It never refers to the conquerors, it refers to the conquered. 
You see, Paul is not the winner of the battle. Paul is the loser. He sees himself rightly as he calls himself the doulos Christu, the slave of Christ, the captive of Christ. And he regards it as the grace of God that in his chains, as it were, he accompanies God, God leads him. He's no more than a captive. That's all he is. He's being led wherever his conqueror leads him. He's not representing himself as a, as a conquering victorious general. He's not even a foot soldier in the army of God. Just the opposite. He's the conquered prisoner being displayed to the glory of the conquering general. He was formerly God's enemy, but now he's been defeated by the power of the gospel. Romans 5.10 says that you were the enemy of God. This triumph doesn't display the power of the captive. It displays the power of the general, the conqueror, who is God himself. The captured prisoners were there to exalt the conqueror. And so what's, what is Paul doing here? What's he saying? He's saying that God alone is the ultimate sovereign. He's the ultimate victor. Now, why would Paul tell the Corinthians that he's thankful to be led as a slave of Christ, as a captive of Christ? And remember, he's still leaving them thinking that he's still in this moment of anxiety. Why would he tell them this? Many in the Corinthian church had seen Paul's trials and suffering as casting doubt on his power and his authority as an apostle. They fell into the the same error that the typical charismatic church today falls into, that weakness and trial is indicative of a lack of faith. Some of them were even ashamed of Paul. They were overly captivated by power and success. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul gives a, a sardonic and a sarcastic response to their view of his weakness. He says in 1 Corinthians 4, and we don't normally read scripture this way, but in this case it's appropriate. Beginning in verse 9, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse or the garbage of all things. In other words, he's calling them out on their pride and on viewing his suffering as a sign that God is not favoring him. In our verse here, he basically says, absolutely, yes, I am suffering and I am thankful. I am in chains. I am a captive of Christ. I am the lowest of all the low. I am dragged through the streets by a general that I didn't ask to know. Paul sees himself as being led as a slave, ultimately to his own death. I'd like to have you turn for a moment to Acts chapter 9. I'm sure you're familiar with this, but I want to show you the nature of Paul's conversion And you be the judge as to whether Paul sees himself as the conquering general or the conquered slave. The conquered slave who will suffer greatly for Christ. How did Paul get converted to Christ? He was conquered. Acts 9 verse 1, but Saul, this is Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, that is Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Does that sound like a conquering general or a slave? Verse 7, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. I'd hate to be those guys. They probably never got any answers. Verse 8, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. Knocked to the ground, confronted, blinded, led around. What does that sound like? The conquering general or a conquered slave? He's the slave. 
The king of all the kings knocked Paul to the ground and blinded him and confronted his sin. And what was Christ's plan for Paul? To exalt him, to put him in a a victory parade as a conquering soldier? The Lord led a believer named Ananias to Damascus to take care of Saul, Paul, and Ananias was hesitant because Saul was the chief persecutor of the church. But the Lord told Ananias his plan for Paul. Look with me at verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul's suffering doesn't nullify his authority or his power as an apostle, but it reveals that God alone is the one with all the power. God's glory is manifested through that suffering. Better to be a captive and suffering slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will ultimately glorify the believer in Christ, than to be a general in Satan's army, leading to eternal judgment. And so Paul's critics have said, you're weak, you're inferior. And he said, yes, I'm weak, but I'm not inferior. He's being used by God, yes, as a humble slave, But as Paul is being led around by God, as as he is in chains for the Lord, the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ is with him and it's spreading. What does Paul mean in his identification as a captured slave of Christ? How was he captured? What was the weapon used against him? 2 Corinthians 5.14 tells us he was captured by love. He was captured by love. So, of course, he is happy about his chains. He is happy about the general who leads him in love. Ephesians 4, 8 tells us that by his death and resurrection and ascension, Jesus had, quote, led a host of captives, not generals, captives. That's you and that's me, defeated by Christ and captured by love. It's only in the defeat of his sinful life in his unregenerate nature, that Paul could be saved only by being defeated, that Paul could then receive the victory of salvation in Christ. And so Paul pictures himself, if I could put it this way, as a slave being led through the streets of Rome, chained with a gigantic smile on his face. Yes, I'm a captive. Yes, I'm going to my death. But look at who's leading me there. The king of all the kings and the Lord of all the lords. And I will serve him. He's a happy slave of Christ, taking whatever God who captured him places before him, up to and including his own death for the sake of the gospel. And from an eternal perspective, Paul is being led ultimately to deliverance and to eternal life. It's ironic that uh, Paul uses this illustration of a Roman triumph as being a captured slave because it would be just outside Rome that Paul would lose his life for the gospel. It would come true in reality for him. But you see, Paul's defeat at the hands of God won't result in his destruction. It results in his salvation. He is the one who's dying, and yet he'll ultimately live. So he's not downcast. He's not, he's not defeated, as it were. He's giving thanks to God. Look, I'm defeated by love. I'm defeated by the gospel. He's being paraded around as one whom God has conquered And now, demonstrating that Paul has been defeated, it shows he's been reconciled. That, yeah, I'm being led by this general, but that general now calls me his friend. And I belong to him. How did Paul view himself and how ought we to view ourselves? Romans 1.1, Paul, a doulos, a slave of Christ Jesus. Romans 6.16 tells us to give thanks because once we were slaves of sin, now we are slaves of righteousness, slaves of Christ himself. In fact, in verse 16, Paul also says that all humanity is already a slave. You're either a slave to sin or a slave to obedience to the gospel. There's no other option. All humanity is enslaved. Now, why is it important, and I've taken a lot of time to give you this background, why is it important to recognize the defeated nature of the fragrance of Christ? Because the fragrance of Christ is best spread by those who completely view themselves as captured slaves. Not prideful men, but men defeated by God with the weapon of love and the weapon of the gospel. 
And if you're completely defeated by God in Christ with the gospel, then your life becomes the fragrance of Christ. Only a captive, only a slave can be a true fragrance. Why is that? Because as a captive, as a slave, you've been bought with a price. That price is the death of Christ himself, and you owe that. You, you understand that obligation. The slave of Christ doesn't regard himself as owning anything. You belong to the master. You don't own anything. You don't even own your own body. You're always available to the master because you're his slave. You don't have an agenda of your own except to follow Christ the master. You're eager to carry out the master's wishes. You don't have any rights. You don't have any false expectations. Did you know that if you literally believe you have no rights, no expectations in life, you can't be disappointed? You can't be. You know that you're owned by your master, and that is your singular purpose. That's your singular devotion. You completely trust your master because he always does what's best for you. You'll go wherever the chains of your faith lead you without argument, without complaint. And all you want is one thing. All you want is to stand before your master and hear him say, and we'll, we'll use the proper English translation here, well done, good and faithful slave. You have been faithful over a, a little. Now I will set you over much. You see, the greatest slaves in the kingdom become the rulers in the kingdom to come. This is the Christian who is the aroma of Christ, who's given up his own rights, given up his own thoughts. The one whose life is so captivated by Christ that his life reflects it at every turn. His life is is an aroma. Darren and I got to sit at Shepherd's Conference this year in a video feed interview with Pastor James Coates from Alberta, Canada. He went to prison for less than five weeks for keeping his church open. And I say less than, it was a long time for him, but for what the effect he had, this was a short period of time. In five weeks, he was, and not just because he's a pastor, but because he's a genuine Christian, he was a fragrance of Christ, literally as a captive, as a prisoner. And he was such a fragrance of Christ that by the time he left, about 37 days after his arrest, his entire floor asked permission to say goodbye to him. And then when all the prisoners were behind bars as he was being escorted out, he said that the entire prison shook with the thunder of all the prisoners shaking their bars as a form of salute. That in 37 days, he had such an impact on him that they were sad to see him go. Paul is happy to be led as a captive of Christ. The Corinthians who mocked his suffering, mocked his weakness, only confirm that Paul is in the center of Christ's will. And remember, he's describing his time of anxiety and sorrow and grief, and yet he's thankful that because he's a captive of Christ, he goes where Christ leads. And if that's the road, then he follows happily. What he's basically saying is, no matter how you would have responded, I am a captive of Christ and I will be the aroma of the gospel. Now, the other two reasons for Paul's thankfulness can go faster. They'll make sense. They'll follow nicely. Here's a second reason for Paul's thankfulness. The widespread nature of the fragrance. The widespread nature of the fragrance. A life lived in Christ in which the believer gives thanks for being the captive of Christ with no rights, no property, no false expectations, no agenda except to please Christ. The one being led as the defeated captive of Christ in the triumphal procession of God the victor over your sin. This is the Christian who just naturally, back in, uh, you can go back to 2 Corinthians 2 now, naturally spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. What does this mean to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of him? Spreads is a word that means reveals, exposes, to make manifest, to bring something to light. In fact, it's a word that can mean to make something famous or to make someone famous, to bring fame to Christ. The effect of Paul being paraded as the captive of Christ in all of his weaknesses, all of his insults, all of his difficulties is that the knowledge of Christ is widespread through his life. Nobody could doubt who he follows. But the fragrance of Christ is like the seed in Jesus' parable of the sower. The seed 
is scattered broadly, but the soils are different. The aroma of the gospel permeates everything so that all around you are forced to take notice. If you're living a life as a captive, everyone around you will notice this. Some will find it to be a sweet aroma. Most will find it to be a stench. Verse 15, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one, a fragrance from death to death to the other, a fragrance from life to life. The gospel saves a few and offends most. In verse 14, Paul pictures himself being carried around, led in a parade as God's display. Now in verse 15, he's doing the carrying. He's carrying the aroma of Christ. He's not the source. He's just the carrier. He sees himself and by, by implication us as the carriers of the aroma of Christ. But the aroma of Christ smells differently to different people. To most, it reeks of death. It reeks of horror because the message of the gospel is horrible to them because they will have to kill their own self-righteousness. To give up my own self-righteousness, to be crucified with Christ and no longer live for self, it reeks of death. Some have asked, well, what is the source of the fragrance? What is this aroma? What is the smell, so to speak? And why is it so disgusting to some? Well, this is a, a word picture taken from the Old Testament. And to put it briefly, this is the aroma of death. Specifically, it is the death of a sacrifice, and it is the aroma of a death that is acceptable, acceptable to God. We think of Genesis chapter 8, beginning in verse 20, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, in other words, he received the sacrifice, it's not that the literal smell is pleasing. Obviously, it's a literary device to say God receives this. God accepts the sacrifice. And it's highly possible for God not to accept a sacrifice. Through the prophet Isaiah, God told Israel that he had grown weary of their false religion and religiosity of the sacrifices made with no faith, no internal reality of loving the Lord. He said in Isaiah 1, 11, what is to me the multitude of your sacrifices? I've had enough of them, he says. He doesn't delight in these sacrifices. So what is the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ? What is that? What is the aroma of Christ? It is the fragrance of the death of a Savior. An acceptable sacrifice which replaced and outdid all other sacrifices. What does Ephesians 5.2 tell us? Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Listen to the description of Christ a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul's point here is pretty clear. To those who humble themselves and believe the gospel, the fragrance of the death of Christ is the aroma of life. If you won't give up your self-righteousness, it's the aroma of death. But if you give up your self-righteousness, it's the aroma of life. Eternal life is yours because of the sacrificial death of Christ. But to those who remain obstinate, who remain stubborn, who remain rebellious, the death of Christ is the stench of death because they won't receive salvation, so they're going to die in their own sins. They won't give up their self-righteousness. They will not bend the knee. This is the effect that the gospel has on all humanity, either glorious belief leading to life or stubborn rejection leading to death and judgment. In 1 Peter 2, Peter quotes Isaiah 28 and Psalm 118 when he characterizes Christ as a stone. And he says that for many, Christ is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The aroma of Christ leads either to judgment or to life. Do you see why it's so important that your life be the aroma of Christ? Because it's your duty to spread the fragrance of Christ and let others make their choice according to the sovereign will of God and how they're going to respond to that. So what is the widespread nature of the fragrance of Christ? What is this? It's very simple. It is you living a holy life that tells everybody around you something's different about this guy. That's it. That's the fragrance of Christ. Living as John said in 1 John 2, 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. And whether you know it or not, 
Whether you're you're aware of this or not, your life as a captive, as one defeated by Christ, will be a fragrance or a testimony to those around you that they either choose life or they choose death. Let me give you one more reason for Paul's thankfulness. We'll call this the reliant nature of the fragrance, the reliant nature of the fragrance, just briefly. Paul is saying that as a minister of the gospel, as one living as a captive, a slave of Christ, he's spreading the aroma of the sacrifice of Christ everywhere, and he acknowledges what a responsibility this is. And I would say the same thing to you. What an overwhelming thought that your life is the difference between eternity in heaven or eternity in hell from a human standpoint because people are watching you. And so he asks this question at the end of verse 16. It's a rhetorical question. Who is sufficient for these things? The awesome responsibility of preaching and living a message with infinite and eternal consequences. This is weighty. This is heavy. This is monumental. To know that your life as a captive of Christ will open eternal life to some and cause others to be even more resistant to Christ. So Paul asks rhetorically, who's sufficient for these things? This is a word that means who's equal to it, who's fit, who's qualified, who's able, who's worthy. And he doesn't give an answer because the answer is obvious. No one is. No one is. So how can you be sufficient, equal, fit, qualified, able, worthy? Jesus himself gave the answer in Luke 18, 27. What is impossible with man is possible with God. The Christian life is not about making your life better, certainly not about giving you everything you want, or even about reducing the amount of suffering in your life. As I've been a pastor for a long time, and one of the ways sometimes I know I believe I know that somebody's salvation is genuine because their life goes from pretty good to horrible. All of a sudden, they're just being hammered all over the place, and that's evidence that God is beginning that process, and maybe if they're a little bit older, God's making up for some lost time in sanctification. The Christian life is having been taken captive to Christ, being led wherever he'll lead you, and and like a Roman triumph, even all the way to your own death. So how can you be sufficient? You can't be. And so Jesus sent the helper. He sent the Spirit of God. Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. That's how you wake up every morning and you say, Holy Spirit, let me be the fragrance of Christ this day. And you make that determination. I have one last question if you'll give me a moment. How do you know if you're being the fragrance of Christ? How do you know this? Since Paul talked about his letters to the Corinthians, he uses the same idea as an illustration that if the Corinthian believers were wondering about Paul's qualifications or or they're mocking his weakness, it's like they're asking, "Uh, Paul, can you give us some letters of recommendation? I don't know who he's going to get it from, from God himself, because there's nobody higher as far as church authority structure goes. Can you give us a letter of recommendation that your ministry has been fruitful, that your ministry has been effective? Can you prove to us that you are who you say you are? And Paul's answer is genius. Look at chapter 3. Verse 1, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Oh, here's his genius You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. The saved Corinthians themselves are Paul's letter of recommendation. All he's doing is saying, so so you're saying, Is my message real? Am I qualified as an apostle? Hmm, let me see. Are you saved? Yes. What a glorious turnaround to the ones that would come against him. He compliments them. You are the affirmation of my ministry because look at you. Yeah, you might be a mess, but you're a mess that's going to heaven. How do you know if you are being the fragrance of Christ? I would answer that question with another question. It's only one that you can answer. Who are your letters of recommendation? Who are they? Whose life shows the impact 
of the fragrance of Christ coming from you? Who would point to you if someone asked them the question, who has helped you become more like Christ? Are you a fragrance of Christ to your wife? Are you the fragrance of Christ to your children, to your grandchildren, to your co-workers, your customers, your employees, your employers, your brothers in Christ, your friends, your neighbors? Who are you a fragrance of Christ to? I hope the answer is everyone. That is our responsibility. You be the fragrance of Christ, and Christ himself will write letters of recommendation about you in the lives of those around you. And by losing your life, by being a captive of Christ, in the end, you get these words, well done, good and faithful slave. You lost because of being captured by love. But when you hear those words, what happens then? You win. That's when you win. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Our Father, I don't think I've ever prayed this before, but I'm praying for a room full of losers a room full of men who are captive to Christ, a room full of men who will be led around by the chains of the word of God, who will obey you to their own detriment, who will obey you to their own sacrifice, who will pour out their lives for the sake of their wives and their children and their grandchildren and their their testimony and their witness. They will see themselves as of no account. They will have no expectations, no rights, no hopes, no dreams of their own, but all that would just point to you Let every man here see himself as expendable for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the church, for the sake of our Savior. And then we would trust you to write letters of recommendation in the lives of those around every man here. We would boldly pray for all the fathers here that their children, every one of them, would sense the aroma of Christ in their daddies and would come to faith from life to life. We pray for the grandfathers here that all of their grandchildren would sense and see the aroma of Christ in their lives and would come to faith from life to life. We would ask these things boldly as we desire to live holy lives by the power of the Spirit. Let these words sink deeply. Let them change our lives, Lord. We pray in Christ's name, amen.